Bonesite, and welcome to Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle to fight back and win against big tech monopolies. Because we take this stance against big tech monopolies, you never know, this show may be banned tomorrow, today, in a week, in a month. In that case scenario, in that worst case scenario, make sure to text us at 203-646-5159. If you text platform or monopoly, we'll also send you some swag. We're on other platforms as well, uh, like Gab, like Rumble. Um, You can also follow us there. So let's dig in. What are we going to talk about today? There's an article in CNBC today talking about how, um, you know, high net worth investors are putting their investments into platform stocks as an inflation hedge. Going to look at that. Um, You know, what does that actually mean? Joe Rogan throwing some shade over at in in Gettier's direction and what's going on there. You saw uh, the mainstream media revel in 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 uh, in that little snippet. Are content creators, content moderators being taken advantage of by the content platforms? We're gonna we're gonna check that one out. Delivery Hero is offering credit. Um, just on this craze we're seeing buy now, pay later. We've talked about this in B2B financing. Now Delivery Hero is offering credit to its vendors, its restaurant merchants, right? So let's jump on it. So you got this article here. Here's how ultra wealthy are investing going into 2022, right? Now, finally, people are starting to talk about inflation. We've been talking about inflation for over a year on this show. Thank you very much. Not just inflation, but hyperinflation. We've had Jim Rickards on the show back January 21. Go check out that interview talking about what you should be doing with your portfolio. Some of this he talks about, right? Like what this article is saying, real estate, go into you know, uh, physical assets that have their own mechanism to retain value, right? As opposed to um, paper and stock, hard physical assets tend to do very well um, in hyperinflationary environments. Platform companies with pricing power. Platform companies are those like Amazon, Apple, and Airbnb. They are correct. Those are all platform companies. Good job, CNBC. Um, I think... You know, the statement here that, you know, platform companies are inflation resistant. And is that actually true? It's a very loaded phrase. I think it's misleading. I don't think that statement is true. I don't think any stocks are really inflation resistant, right? Inflate when you have high inflation, when you have rising interest rates, it's it's a it's net net a bad thing for equities for stocks, right? So Really, no stock is inflation resistant. If you want to put it on a spectrum and say which stocks are more inflation resistant than others, then yes, I think you could make an argument to say that, you know, uh, platform companies in an inflationary environment, which again, if you have an inflationary environment, what you would also expect from that environment is that you'd have slowing growth because inflation is rising, debt is becoming more expensive which then curtails the growth of the economy. So, you know, rising interest rates, rising inflation tends, should go hand in hand, growth slows. So what kind of stocks perform well in that environment? And yes, I, I do think actually relatively platform companies should outperform in that environment. If we look back at the fall in March of 2020, when COVID was first, you know, kind of came onto the, the global scene here, 
This was an interview that we did with Kara, the analyst at Wisdom Tree. Wisdom Tree and, and Applico, we worked together to launch this index and then the, the ETF called Plat, which puts all the public platform stocks into a basket, right? So if CNBC is saying platforms are inflation resistant, wouldn't totally agree with that. But if you put my slant on what CNBC, I think, is trying to say, this is interesting, right? So if you look at this chart, this is from an interview that we did with Kara June 2020, right? So this was fresh just a few months after COVID. Everything went down in March, right? But Plant went down a little bit less. In this, we're comparing it to the S&P 500, the MSCI index, which is more of like a manufacturing and industrial oriented index. You know, on this scale, S&P and MSCI kind of hidden around $7,000 on this relative scale, right? If, if everything started out at 10,000 bucks, kind of pre-COVID in January, in March, um, those two went down to about 7,000. The low point for Platt was, you know, maybe around 7,500. Everything went down. Platt went down a little bit less. And then what you see in April, Platt's coming back a little bit more, right? End of March, beginning of April, Platt's a little bit above 8,000. S&P and MSCI are still, you know, a little bit below 8,000. But then Going into May and then into June, you really start to see Platt break away where MSCI and S&P are still sub 10,000 and now Platt's over 11,000, right? So what we saw when COVID hit was that Platt was able to go down a little bit less and bounce back faster. And the reason why, and what we talked about in this interview and others with Kara and other videos that we've had is that, you know, platforms are more asset light the things that their customers are consuming don't actually sit on their balance sheet, right? So they have a, generally um, a much lighter balance sheet where all that inventory is not there. It's not an asset. It's not a liability. It's from this network of producers that are creating value of some sort that's being consumed on the other side of the platform. So they're asset light, um, which gives them a certain sense of resiliency. They can also take advantage of the downturn by investing in growth since the year or two now since that crash you've seen a lot of the mid to large size platform companies reinvest heavily in growth and that benefit them quite tremendously so you know there's a lot of factors as you look more broadly at the past couple of years and why platforms have done very well with just the shift to digital needing to interact in a digital environment now just because of covid you can't you know go to the store or a lot of people weren't going to the store as much as they used to right but if you look at just those few months and you and you and you see how the market uh, valued the companies generally these platform companies with strong winner take all winner take most dynamics um not the younger single digit billion platform companies but generally if you're a moderately well-capitalized platform business. There was a shift to later stage platforms that are well-capitalized, right? Tens of billions of market cap, if not, you know, towards the, not, the, uh, the hundreds of billions of market cap, right? These companies are going to make it through a crash, a crisis. They can bounce back faster. They have a very resilient asset light business model, and then they can reinvest in growth and take advantage of the pain that the rest of the economy and and incumbents are experiencing. So in that sense, yes, I would say 
the platform companies are more inflation resistant than other equity classes. Overall, I would say, though, that going into a hyperinflationary environment, you do want to just overall reduce your exposure to equities in general and start to diversify your assets into other asset classes beyond stocks. For more on that, go watch that Jim Rickards interview. Are content platform companies really just a mechanism to take advantage of free labor? Hmm, I don't know. Let's dig in. If you look at the a lot of the gig economy, what I would call service marketplace companies, your Ubers, right? Your DoorDashes, you know, the labor advocates for the gig economy workers, the 1099 workers, the contract workers will say that these gig economy marketplaces are taking advantage of these, um, you know, hourly workers, not giving them benefits, cheating them out of, uh, you know, uh, kind of social security and, and taxes. The government will certainly say that these marketplaces are cheating on taxes. They should be treating these workers as W-2 employees, not 1099, right? Yada, yada, yada. We've talked about California and the AB5 law and 1099 versus W-2 many, many, many times on the show, right? So there's that constant debate. These big, bad platforms taking advantage of this, you know, um, kind of hourly, kind of like blue collar labor, people doing deliveries and picking up orders and this kind of stuff, right? Now, Let's take that construct and think about it in the world of content platforms, specifically these content platforms that have a level of what I would call curation. Let's say you're on a content platform and people are are making posts, right? I post a, a photo to Instagram. I post a tweet to Twitter. That is kind of the most basic and fundamental form of value creation as a producer um, on a content platform. But there's actually a next level of, of, of value creation on the platform, and that's actually value creation in the form of curation, moderation, right? To kind of say, hey, yeah, there is all this content that's being created for free, user-generated content, okay? There's also now another layer of value on top to kind of make sense of all that stuff, to weed out the bad posts or to weed out uh, the users that are you know, polluting the community. And that's a regular workload. But historically, on a lot of these content platforms, that workload has actually been done for free. Now, with Reddit going public this year, 2022, there's been a lot of articles over the years, right? So look at this article. Is it time for Reddit to pay its moderators? Uh, January 2015. This is Seven years ago, gang. This article basically talks about moderators putting in multiple dozens of hours, sometimes a week, um, you know, taking down bad posts, uh, taking action against users that are kind of harassing uh, people in, in the comments, right? And the threads on Reddit. So this is the Yelp elite squad, right? Um, they'll invite you to dinner. It's a diverse community of passionate writers, photographers, and adventurers join exclusive events. You know, they're giving perks to their elite reviewers and producers, right? Have you spotted anyone with a Yelp elite badge? It's our way of recognizing these folks for making a difference. And, you know, there's a whole kind of community of, of elite Yelpers. You know, another one is Wikipedia. This is a list of Wikipedians by number of edits. 
you know, these people making millions of edits, hundreds of thousands of edits. Look at this. They're not paid anything. This is from The Atlantic talking about the covert world of people trying to edit Wikipedia for pay. This is about the most prolific editor on Wikipedia, 32-year-old Justin Anthony Knapp, uh, the most active contributor of all time, has made an astonishing 1,485,000 edits, an average of 385 per day. Editing Wikipedia became my hobby, and for a while it was basically all I did for up to, up to 16 hours a day. Knapp would surf around various pages looking for inaccuracies or missing information. When I did the millionth edit, members of the Wikimedia Foundation were generous enough to fly me out to D.C. It felt great that my work was being appreciated. So the guy did a million edits for free, and they flew him out to D.C. and gave him a pat on the back. People talking about uh, Uber drivers being taken advantage of. What about... These content moderators, are they being taken advantage of and extorted by the content platform companies? Now, yes, Wikimedia is a not-for-profit, but Reddit is not. Reddit's now worth over $10 billion going public. And I'm going to show you some examples of other content platforms that are actually looking for how to pay for content curation and moderation. But I think it's a very interesting question. It's a lot of time, and that time is not being compensated for. Could the platform figure out a way to try to compensate these moderators if the platform really wanted to, right? What is Reddit doing for all of its content moderators? No, no, you don't see those kinds of articles. Instead, you see our articles for the past seven years talking about how they put in all this time, some, some of them 40 hours a week, you know, 10 to 40 hours a week for free with really not much to show for it. So let's look at this news, which just came out in the past month, Discord's new premium memberships let creators monetize servers. Interesting, right? Discord is a chat platform, communication platform, really started out of the gaming community. Microsoft tried to buy it for billions of dollars. They turned it down. Now they're rolling out this new offering with around 10 creators who will pave the way for Discord's 150 million monthly active users to pay to access a range of channels or servers and support creators. Premium memberships offer what a number of creators have already been experimenting with, a way to offer more content or access to community members. Uh, Discord communities will be able to create tiered perks, view analytics on member engagement, log channels, or even entire servers to paying subscribers. So you, you know, I give Discord credit for trying. It is a bifurcation, right? It's a very big shift of, you know, having something which is generally free with ads and this, but now kind of restricting access with dollars being associated with it. If you think about the rise of Patreon and Patreon really helping creators um, monetize the audience that they have, and, uh, you know, now Discord kind of stepping into this saying, hey, they have a 90-10 split with creators, right? Allowing Discord communities to keep 90% of all the revenue. We've seen, obviously, Patreon rise uh, very, very quickly. I think there's a lot of similar threads going on here around compensating for value. I'll give one other example, which hasn't gone there yet, but something I've talked a lot about in the past is to say, no, when you have these news feeds on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram, et cetera, the spread of fake news, we have algorithms that are trained to accentuate content, which is very controversial, has high engagement, very often triggering content, incendiary content, very often fake news content. 
is it gets the highest engagement. If you think about the role of newspapers 20 years ago, 30 years ago, before the internet, right? Yes, newspapers were creating content, but you were also trusting in the newspaper's brand that if they reported on something, it was, it was factually true. They had journalistic standards on having sources, a certain number of sources to make sure that they were holding themselves to the highest standards and what they were reporting on was true. It's why newspapers and the media have higher standards for libel laws and you know can be sued if they are spreading fake news and profiting off of it. But if we now you know fast forward to today, 2022, newspapers, their business model has been destroyed. Their standards of journalistic integrity have been thrown completely out the window and are probably some of the biggest perpetrators of spreading fake news for their own benefit. Point is, would people pay for a curated news feed that you could trust? Right. Where you would say, hey, you know what? The New York Times, New York Times, let's say that what's the platform version of New York Times is New York Times doesn't doesn't actually write any articles. All they do is curate a news feed on Facebook. And all they're doing is having editors look through the different stories online that are being and and saying, yep, this is true. I now allow it to be in the news feed. It's just a curation. It's a form of curation as value creation, right? You can you could write the article or you could just be a good editor and curate what's real and what's not. And would people pay for that? I think they would. Now, yes, there's a lot of, you know, political bias these days and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, pick the New York Times on the left and the New York Post on the right. And you're going to have readers gravitate towards the publication that they identify with more from a political stance. But the point is, both of these uh, publishers, could they have a business model purely just being a content curator? And I think they could um, if the platforms would provide a mechanism for what? Monetizing the value of curation, which is kind of, I'm now coming full circle with it here, gang. And so this is where I go for what Gab just launched. Gab just launched this new public feeds feature. This feature allows Gabbers to create a, to curate a custom feed that can be private or public. If it is public, other Gabbers can subscribe to it and it can be viewed and shared by people who do not have Gab accounts. So you could have feeds that have a theme that are being edited with a certain flavor of curation. And, and would you pay for that value? I think you would. I know I would. How much would you pay? I don't know. A dollar a month? Two dollars a month? Five dollars a month? I think this is the next phase, hopefully is the next phase of what Gab is doing with the ability to create your own feeds. I've talked for actually years on the show about, you know, bifurcating the role of content creation and content curation with, with public platforms. Actually, when we interviewed Tim Kendall, the Facebook's first director of monetization, like employee 15. And he, he had the Netflix documentary talking about how devastating Netflix algorithms are. He has testified in front of Congress. We had him on the show. And one of the things I asked him is exactly, exactly this. Hey, Tim, what if we bifurcated the role of content curation? What if you could curate your own newsfeed and get paid for it? Right. Could we bring journalistic integrity back to the newsfeed? 
which is kind of what happened with the, that's what the newspaper was. Yes, they were writing the content, but they're also curating the content. And that's one of the things we've lost is the integrity of curation. So, you know, I kind of started out this segment poking fun at like Reddit, should they pay their moderators? You know, the more you think about it, there's value. The more you think about it, you know, if you look at Wikipedia, these moderators actually have a lot of sway and influence and power. And on, in Wikipedia's case, you're seeing moderators get paid to, you know, interject certain information on Wikipedia listings, right? And you're kind of changing history. And these Reddit moderators, as we've, as we've talked about on the show in the past, have tremendous power where they have literally created uh, their own like Reddit super moderator group that will make collective decisions they were doing this to enforce the um, expelling of certain Reddit communities that the Reddit super moderator group did not like or approve of. Then they basically held Reddit hostage and were successful to get these communities banned. So these Reddit super moderators have tremendous power. When will the day come that the Reddit super moderators demand compensation? Will this IPO open Pandora's box? Money is coming into this one way or another. Is the platform going to get out in front of it and help prevent corruption and also support their moderators, their curators, like we're seeing Discord to do, like we're basically seeing as the, the impetus for the Patreon business model? I think it's a really interesting topic. Hopefully more to come on this. Bloomberg came out with a story saying that Delivery Hero is getting into... The banking industry, what are they doing? Food delivery platforms are looking for how they can shore up their profits, looking at advertising, which we've talked about Instacart making a big push into, and now looking at financing. So Delivery Hero has rolled out um, buy now, pay later for consumers, which I don't know, seems a little like average order size for a meal. You're, you're going to split that thing up into installments. I don't know. That that doesn't seem to really hit for me. What is interesting is the thing that they are looking to roll out later in this year in certain markets is to provide financing to the restaurants. And this is actually a huge trend. We've talked about basically the opportunity for B2B financing, B2B fintechs that are providing uh, you know, uh, net terms financing capability that are bringing credit solutions to businesses. Um, kind of bringing that consumer experience of buy now, pay later, but to businesses. And I think this is really a massive unlock that we are still in the early phases of seeing the true impact of it. If you think about how a lot of these businesses have managed their cash flows in the past, this is really a big threat to banks. Banks that would be providing a line of credit um, banks that might be providing like AR financing, factoring is another word for that, right? A lot of small businesses have been using existing uh, credit vehicles to bridge their cash flow for the existing operations of their business. But now these fintechs are bringing kind of the buy now, pay later model to small businesses. And this is going to be a real game changer. What this is going to do for Delivery Hero is just at another level of stickiness to the delivery hero's relationship with that restaurant, right? Particularly in terms of saying, well, you know, if you are doing the majority of your business with us, not one of our competitors, we will give you better terms on 
the net terms financing, for example, right? It's a key value added service. You look at a lot of these marketplaces, what are like the two key things that marketplaces, whether B2C or B2B, solve for? Once you have the producer and the consumer, the two basically key value added services are fulfillment. So for Delivery Hero, that's delivery of the food. And then what's the other key value added service? Financing, which could be net terms financing, could be insurance, payments, shipping and fulfillment, and financing are the two key value added services that every marketplace looks to wrap around their core transactions sooner rather than later. The battle now is less on onboarding new restaurants and more on retaining existing restaurants and getting preferential treatment from the top restaurants and having them give you either you know better participation, ideally exclusivity, but you know all the top food delivery players now have coverage with you know uh, the majority of the restaurants. Now it's just a question of saying, well, who has the better working relationship with the right restaurants? And so financing is a, is a great mechanism to really go end to end on that transaction and to really tighten that relationship with your platform as opposed to your competitors. You're seeing now Delivery Hero look at this with their restaurants, but we're seeing this more broadly across all of the top B2B marketplaces, which we cover quite extensively on the show and in AppleCode's business, you are seeing a huge, huge, huge shift across all areas of B2B distribution to embrace kind of this net terms financing model. Kind of like a credit card getting net 30, net 60 payment terms, but it's cheaper. It's done seamlessly, instantaneously, and it's stealing that business away from a lot of what traditional banks would be providing to these small businesses. So. It's growing like a weed delivery here. I think the, the latest example, which uh, I think they're going to see a tremendous amount of, of, uh, <laughs> of engagement on something like this. You know, a lot of news, mainstream media. Oh, Joe Rogan joined Getter 10 days ago and now he already hates it. Is that really the case? Let's find out. Here is the interview that he gave to this guy named Tim Dillon where he talks, you know, what did he actually say? You know, no one actually likes to play the video. Let's actually look at what Joe Rogan said. Isn't there an inevitable shift coming to where comics really are just going to have to compete digitally? I think the digital aspect of it is the best way to promote themselves for sure. Right. Whether it's through putting their stuff online on a YouTube or a Rumble or Instagram or whatever they're doing. Like or people, Getter, which you're, you're now on. You're yeah. on Getter. That's a news story. Uh, like, why is it a news Chinese story? Communist Party now, I believe. Yeah. Why are you? It's a news story that you're on Getter. Well, the news story is their, their fucking amount of people that signed up increased by 1,150% or something. Yeah. Something you have like 20, uh, you have like 9 million followers on Getter. Yeah. It's not real though. Is it because not real? Getter doesn't even have 9 million people. No. Really? The, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's very, it's a lot so of fuckery. So there's fuckery with that. This is where the fuckery is. They yeah. take all my Twitter followers. So I, my Twitter followers like 7.8 million. Yeah. And then they port those over. So I started out with 7.8 oh. million. So whatever I have now, if I have eight, 
It's like really I have two hundred thousand. So getter yeah. is fugazi, fugazi, as they say. Definitely right. fugazi. And every time I post on Twitter, it posts automatically on getter. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it's like it's automatically done. Weird. That. So it's just harvesting your yeah. tweets. And I don't know how to get off. Like if I get off a getter, you I don't have know. to. You you <laughs> I have don't to. Think I can. You have to sit down with Marjorie Taylor Greene yeah. personally, and, and she's got to tell me all yeah. about what's in the basement yeah, of Comet Pizza. She's got to <laughs> take you down the rabbit hole. Then you come out the other side of getter uh, you go read these articles oh my god it's like getter's business is over getter is falling apart oh my god getter is gonna file for bankruptcy tomorrow because joe rogan threw some shade at getter you actually listen to it and he says yeah i have maybe a few hundred thousand actual followers on getter but then they're inflating my number because they're including my number of twitter followers yeah he's taking some jabs at getter but I don't know. It, it's, it's way overblown. The interesting thing, which he touches on with, 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 the, with the Chinese Communist Party comment that he made, Getter's funding source is this guy, Guo, who is this like Chinese billionaire that defected from China. And like he put the $75 million into Getter, like him alone. I don't know. I, I also don't believe that. But there are a lot of questions on Getter's origins on, you know, is Getter... Similarly with Rumble, are they truly here to deliver on free speech um, or are they kind of using this as a branding and marketing scheme to attract users, but maybe they truly don't follow through on the ideals of free speech and that when the rubber hits the road and they get threatened with being kicked off of AWS, I guess they're using AWS when they get threatened to be kicked off of iOS and Android with their apps, are they going to capitulate and bend the knee to the tech platform monopolies that we're trying to battle against in the first place? That really is the true question. Gab CEO, this guy has been through the ringer for years. This guy went through, Andrew Torba, went through Y Combinator, the top accelerator incubator program in the world, hands down. The guy understands how to build a tech business. They have literally less than 10 employees, over 30 million active users, have built their entire own tech stack. The servers are in are not in the cloud on AWS. The servers are in their building. They've built their own infrastructure. Not only have they built their own tech stack to run their website and everything, the credit card companies have banned them. So they take donations, but you can't even donate with a credit card because the credit card companies won't process your credit card. So they've built their own payment system. Now I think the business is profitable because they've launched an ad network and they've built their own payment system. It's insane what this company has done with literally less than 10 people. If this was something that was in vogue, um, not branded as extremist, even though it's not, easily this company is worth billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. Andrew's taking shots at Getter for saying that Getter is banning, banning America First Patriots, shadow banning reporters, banning certain words they do not like. It's a very real challenge to see if you as a leader have the gumption to survive the onslaught from big tech, from mainstream media, to carry the torch of free speech. It is not easy to do. Torba, whether you like him or not, the guy's rough around the edges, but he's done it, and I give him credit for it. At the end of the day, transparency cures all, right? You just got to be honest and open. I would actually love for them to be much more open and transparent about 
the origins of the platform, the background, how did this get going? What is Get On Me, which is, you know, I guess the original kind of clone business. Would love more visibility and transparency, uh, but take the the Joe Rogan mainstream media kind of craze around Getter with, you know, a whole dose load of salt. So that's it for us today, winner take all. Thank you very much for joining. Hope you enjoyed it. Talk to you soon.